What's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. makeup? Uh, Should we wear a suit to church? Should we date? I mean, these are all issues that there are people are debating about, but yet the the Bible is uh, silent on it or it doesn't have clarity in it. And Paul gives two examples that the Roman church was dealing with. Uh, And those two examples was, you know, should we only eat vegetables or are we okay to eat whatever we want? Or um, should we do certain things on certain days? And then does that make us more spiritual or are all days equally uh, as important? And so those are some of the examples of issues that Christians have disagreed with through the centuries. And with each disagreement, you basically have two types of believers. Uh, Paul describes them as strong and weak. Now, when Paul says someone is weak, he's not saying they're weak in their basic Christian faith. He's saying they're weak in their understanding of the liberty they have in Christ. They're weak in their understanding of what they are permitted to do in their Christian faith. And these are the ones that Paul says that claim, you know what, you can only eat vegetables. If you eat anything more than that, then you're not godly. You can only celebrate certain things on certain days, and that's what makes you more spiritual. Um, And so, you know, in the church world today, these would be people would say, you know what, you can't go to the movies, you you can't dance, you you can't date. If you're a woman, you can't wear makeup. If you're a man, you can't have long hair. You know, the ones who kind of come up with these different views and claim that anyone who doesn't hold to them is not doing what's right. Now, when Paul speaks of those who are strong, he's not just saying that they're super spiritual Christians. He's saying that they're strong in their understanding of the liberty that they have in Christ. And so they are the ones who believe, hey, you can eat anything you want. Well, we're free. We're at liberty to do that. We're at liberty to celebrate certain things on certain days or or celebrate them on a different day. That, that doesn't really make us more spiritual or not. And so they'd be today those who realize, hey, we're at liberty to dance. We're at liberty to go to the movies. If you're a woman, you want to wear makeup, go free. Feel free to do that. If you're a man, you want to grow your hair long, you have that liberty. So um, in these two different groups, we have two different views on these issues. And so really now Paul brings it back to now that we have these different views on issues where the Bible's not clear, how then do we treat other believers who disagree with us. When their view differs from ours, you might think, well, men should never have long hair, and the other person might think, well, surely they can. You might think, nobody who's a Christian should go to the movies, and the other person says, hey, you're completely free to do that. Whatever the issue may be, now when you differ, the question is, how do you deal with that? 
how do you treat that other person who has a differing opinion when the Bible is not clear on these issues? And so in this section, Paul gives us eight different principles that he says, you know what, if you put these principles into practice, then you're going to do what's right with regards to how you should treat other believers who differ from you on issues where the Bible's not clear. And the last time we were together, we looked at the first four issues that Paul shares with us. The first principle that Paul shares is we need to receive those we disagree with, not to dispute with them, but to befriend them. The second one was strong believers shouldn't despise weaker believers. The third, weak believers shouldn't judge stronger believers in the issues where the Bible isn't clear. And the fourth, those who disagree with our convictions on biblically unclear things can be right with God if they're doing those things unto the Lord. And so Paul starts with those four great principles. And now this morning, we're going to finish this section looking at four more principles that Paul shares with us. So we'll have eight in total. And if we can put these into practice, we'll be fine with how we treat others who disagree with us on issues the Bible isn't clear on. The fifth principle that Paul shares with us is in verses 10 through 12 of chapter 14, which says this. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us shall give account of himself to God. So Paul now throws out two questions. One question is to those who are weak in their understanding of their liberties, and one question is to those who are strong in their understanding of their liberties. To the weak believer, Paul says, why do you judge your brother? Why do you judge that person who knows their liberties and is exercising those liberties? And to the strong believer, Paul asks, why do you show contempt for your brother? That person who doesn't realize those liberties, why are you showing that person contempt. Now, we already looked at in those last four principles, Paul dealing with this issue of don't judge those who have more liberty or exercise more liberty than you, and don't despise and show contempt to those who don't. So he's already dealt with that, but now he gives a great reason for why we shouldn't do this. And here is his reason, because we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. One of the reasons we shouldn't judge, one of the reasons we shouldn't show contempt is because all of us are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, it's important to note that in the Bible, there are two different judgments of Christ. There is a judgment for believers and there is a judgment for unbelievers, and I want to make sure that we don't mix those up, because if you do, then you'll have some biblical problems. So for unbelievers, they will face a judgment for their sin. In Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, this is referred to as the great white throne judgment, where those who have not accepted Christ, whose name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, that there are books recording every sin they've ever committed, and they will be judged for their sin. This is going to happen after the thousand-year reign of Christ, and that judgment will determine the eternal judgment 
which will be hell for those who are unbelievers. Now, fortunately for us as believers, we do not face this judgment. Our name is written in the Lamb's book of life. We don't face the judgment of sin. Why? Because Jesus Christ paid for that sin on the cross, and when we accepted Him, we were forgiven of that. So this is not a judgment that we face, but yet there is a judgment for believers. It's not a judgment for our sin. It's a judgment for our works in this life. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9-10, through 10, we're told that our works in this life will be judged by fire. Some of our works are going to be like wood and hay, and they're going to be consumed. They're going to be burnt up. There's not going to be any reward for them. Why? Because they were all about you, and they were all about me. They were not for Jesus Christ. But other works are going to be like precious stones and gold, and they're going to go and be tested by the fire, and they're going to endure, and we're going to have an eternal reward because of that. And so, when Paul says that we all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, he's referring to this judgment that we will face as believers. A judgment for our works in this life, not a judgment for our sin. And the main reason that Paul shares this about a judgment for our works is verse 12. Notice what he says. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. Notice that when you and I stand before Jesus Christ, when we're giving account of all that we've done in this life, we give account of ourselves. We don't give an account of anybody else. When you stand before Jesus, you are responsible for you. You're not responsible for others. You're not responsible for their choices. You're not responsible for their you know, actions. You're not responsible for what they've done. You're going to stand before the Lord, and you're going to be responsible for yourself. Jesus is the judge, not us. And we are accountable for what we have done, not for what everyone else has done. You know, too often we get distracted with really taking the role that doesn't belong to us. We start judging. We start despising. We start thinking, hey, people are answerable to us. We start playing that Holy Spirit role in people's lives and these issues where the Bible's not even clear on. And Paul's saying, well, wait a second. That's not your role. What you need to be focused on is the fact that one day you're going to stand before Jesus. And you and I have plenty of things in our own life, especially on these areas where the Bible isn't clear, that we should just be focusing on how we can grow and trust the Lord to judge and deal with our brothers and sisters in Christ for what they're doing in these areas where the Word of God isn't clear or is silent. John Murray said this, It is to God each will render account, not to men. It is concerning himself he will give accounts, not on behalf of another. So the thought is focused upon the necessity of judging ourselves now in the light of the account which we will be given ultimately to God. We are to judge ourselves rather than sit in judgment upon others. You know, it's God's job to judge other believers because they're going to give an account to Him and not to us. And it's our job to judge how we are living because we're going to give an account to God on behalf of ourselves, not anyone else. So the fifth principle for how we should treat others who disagree with us on issues the Bible isn't clear on is God is our judge and we are responsible to Him 
So let the Lord judge on the areas where the Bible isn't clear. You know, this is something I think is just so important. Just let it go. These issues where the Bible's not clear on and we get all flustered and upset and have these disputes that lead to all this different stuff that's not good, just realize, you know what? <laughs> on these particular issues, I'm not talking about where the Bible's clear, where the Bible's black and white, where we can say, hey, you know what? You're in sin, you're wrong. We're not talking about that. We're talking about these issues where the Bible isn't clear. I should just be able to say, you know what? There's so many things in my life that I need to grow in. Why don't I spend time focusing on that so when I do stand before the Lord, I will have a much more reward than spending all my time here looking at this person, looking at that person. Why are you doing this? Why aren't you doing that? You know, that's not my role. Just trust the Lord with them in those areas and focus on your own growth and watch what the Lord will do in that. So the sixth principle for how we should treat others who disagree with us is in verse 13. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. Since we're all going to give account to the Lord for ourselves, Paul reiterates this reality. Hey, let's not judge one another anymore. Leave it to Jesus. But then he says, you know what? Instead of judging, here's something else that you should do. Instead of doing that, there, there's something more important to be aware of. He says, but rather resolve this not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. You and I shouldn't just stop saying, you know what, I'm fine, I'm content with not judging. He's saying, no, 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 there's something even more. Make sure you're not being a stumbling block. Make sure you're not a cause for another believer to fall. And when Paul's speaking about stumbling blocks or falling, he's speaking about stumbling into sin, falling into sin, being someone who causes someone else to have their relationship with God hindered because of things that we are doing. You know, I think within the context here, the two main ways that we can do that, and obviously, you know, as believers, there's lots of sin that we can do to cause other believers to stumble. But within the context of what we're looking at, I think two main things that we want to highlight here is first, we can discourage or beat other believers down through our legalism against them, which can cause them to stumble, which can cause them to fall. And this is usually done by believers who are weak in their understanding of the liberties that they have in Christ. They're the ones who will say, well, how dare you go to the movies? Or how dare you listen to secular music? You should only be listening to worship music. And, oh, look at you. You're a man and you have long hair. What is wrong with you? Oh, you know, look at you. You're not wearing your suit on Sunday. You know, who do you think you are? You're so ungodly and you need to change right now. You know, when a believer who is weak in their understanding of their liberty starts to treat others who have liberties and exercise those liberties with this judgment, with this rebuke, all of a sudden that rebuke is something that can cause that other believer to stumble, to fall. They might start thinking, well, wait, maybe I am totally in sin here. Maybe I shouldn't be ever going to the movies and maybe I need to get a haircut. Maybe I shouldn't wear makeup anymore. And it can cause them all of a sudden in their relationship with the Lord where they felt like I'm doing fine. It's great. I have freedom in this to now be stumbling in that. The second way we can cause other believers to stumble and fall into sin is by enticing them to sin through an unwise use of our liberties. 
And this is usually done by those who are strong in their understanding of the liberty they have in Christ. They often have a tendency to flaunt their liberties and to entice other believers to do things they feel are wrong. And so that's another side where we can cause people to stumble, where we're not loving, where we're not aware of the fact that our liberties and our exercise of those liberties might be influencing these other people who don't recognize they have that liberty in a way that causes them to stumble, in a way that causes them to fall into sin. So the sixth principle for how we should treat others who disagree with us on issues the Bible isn't clear on is do not cause other believers to stumble or fall through your legalism or liberties. Now what Paul's going to share with us in these next two verses show us kind of what we need to do. Okay, yeah, I understand we shouldn't cause people to stumble and fall. That's not good. But now he kind of gets us to the heart of it in these next verses of like, you know what, if you just do this, you're not going to be someone who's causing other people to stumble or fall. Notice what he says in verses 14 and 15. I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Yet, if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Paul starts off saying, you know what? I'm convinced in my relationship with the Lord that there's, you know, any food that you eat, that there's nothing unclean. We are at liberty to eat whatever we want. And so if you grew up in a Jewish background and you had this kosher diet and you think, well, I can never eat pork, whatever, you know what? You're not ungodly for eating pig. It's okay. And if you came from a, you know, a pagan background where they were sacrificing meat to idols and, you know, you don't want to eat that meat, there's nothing wrong with that meat. It's not demon possessed meat. It's okay. You can consume it. Paul understood, hey, any food is okay to eat. But notice he goes on to say, you know what? We need to know this as well. If someone thinks a certain food is unclean, then to them, it's unclean. Paul realized, I've come to a place in my Christian life where I understand this liberty, but not everybody's there yet. There are those who haven't come to that place. There are those who don't realize that they have freedom to do that because of their upbringing. Maybe they're Jewish and they only had this kosher diet, and for them to eat anything beside that would be completely sinful. And realize that, or those coming from a pagan background and to eat any meat that was ever sacrificed to idols, no way they're going to do that. And so Paul is saying, hey, to them, they don't have this freedom. And if you eat this food in front of them, Paul says you can grieve them. And notice the most important thing, you're not walking in love. And I think that's really the key to the whole stumbling, making people fall issue is it comes back to, am I willing to love them enough to lay down liberties? Am I willing to say, you know what? I don't want to grieve you. And so I'm going to love you enough to give up a liberty, to not act in a way, to not indulge in a thing that would in any way grieve you or cause you to stumble. You might be free to eat certain things or do certain things, but if that freedom caused other believers to stumble, to be grieved, then we should love them enough not to do it in front of them. John MacArthur shares some good insights on how we can grieve a weaker believer. How would a weak brother be grieved? 
simply by seeing a strong Christian do what he felt was wrong. If you're strongly convinced that something is wrong and you see a strong believer do it, you will be grieved over him seeming abu- over his seeming abuse of liberty. But in the context of Romans chapter 14, I think Paul is saying that the weaker brother is grieved not just because of that, but because he thinks he must follow suit. But by following the instruction or example of the strong believer, he does what he believes is wrong and has to live with the remorse and guilt of his conscience. He forfeits the peace and joy of his Christian walk. And I think both of these things are important to realize. Yes, when we do something and engage in a liberty that another person doesn't feel like they have liberty to do, then they're looking at us and thinking, wow, I'm grieved or stumbled because I think you're doing something that's wrong. But there's also the other side of it. Maybe they look up to you, you know, and I see this as a pastor and I got to be careful. And they think, well, well, if the pastor does it or if this spiritual person does it, well, maybe I'm supposed to do it as well. And so they follow suit, even though within their own conscience, they feel like I'm doing something wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway because this other person is an example. And so we got to be careful that with either of those, we can cause them to get to a place where they're stumbling in their relationship with the Lord. And notice what Paul goes on to say. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. And this really brings it back to the heart of everything. If Jesus was willing to give up his life for the sake of the believer that you are having this issue with, then you and I certainly should be willing to give up any liberty that might cause them to stumble. Our liberties should never be more important to us than loving other believers. And if our liberties are more important, then we got a love problem. And we need to really ask the Lord to work in us because our liberty shouldn't be more important than that person. It shouldn't be more important than loving that person. It shouldn't be more important than that person's relationship with the Lord. We don't want them to stumble and we don't want them to fall. Now, in the next three verses, Paul's going to give us a reason why. Why is it so important not to stumble and fall other believers? Well, verses 16 through 18. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. You know, our liberty in Jesus Christ, it's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with it. It's actually wonderful that we have so much freedom, so much liberty in our relationship with Jesus Christ, much more freedom and liberty than the law and the Old Testament. You know, the new covenant in Christ is a covenant of liberty. And it's a good thing. It's a, it's a wonderful thing to have, but not if we use it in a way that destroys another believer. Then all of a sudden, what was good, Paul says, can be evil. Something that is good, the liberty that you have in Christ, if it's used in a way that destroys another believer, that stumbles another believer, that causes another believer to fall into sin, then all of a sudden that liberty that was good has been misused and it's no longer good by the way in which you're using it to hurt another believer. And so Paul says, don't let your good be spoken of as evil. Don't Give liberty in Christ a bad name. It's a great thing to have, but just make sure you exercise it properly so you're not causing it to be something that it's not meant to be. Our liberties in Christ are a good thing, 
But we need to use those liberties in a way that brings good to others who don't understand the liberties that they have. And that means for us, oftentimes, not exercising those liberties for the good of someone else. Now, Paul goes on to remind us what the kingdom of God's like. And I think this is the real reason where you say, well, why should we do this? And Paul said, you know what? Let me take it to a whole nother level. Let me remind you of the bigger picture of not just our little kingdom that we have here on this earth and the way that we live and the liberties we have. Let's go back to the, the real kingdom, the, the kingdom of God. And notice what he says. The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. You know, if you and I placed food and drink or any other liberty that we have before righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, then we have completely missed the heart of God. We've completely missed what God's desire is for us. You see, God first and foremost, He wants us to have love for other believers, to have right living, to have peace and joy in our relationships. And if we say, you know what, forget that stuff. My liberty is more important than peace with them. My liberty is more important than loving them. My liberty is more important than joy. My liberty is more important than doing what's right. And so I'm just going to engage in it. Then we've missed the heart of God. In the kingdom of God, the thing that is acceptable to God is not how much we indulge our liberties. It's in how much we really live rightly, live for peace, live for joy. And we need to remember that that's what he says is acceptable to the Lord. And so often we're just concerned with what's acceptable to me, what pleases me, my liberty, my right. I'm going to hold on to them instead of looking at the bigger picture. What is acceptable to God here? What does He want from you? What does He want from me? The sixth principle for how we should treat others who disagree with us on issues the Bible isn't clear on. Do not cause other believers to stumble or fall through your legalism or liberties. And the best way to do that is just to love them. Love them enough not to flaunt your liberties in front of them. Love them enough not to rebuke and judge them for exercising liberties that you don't. And remember, in God's kingdom, what is acceptable to Him is righteousness, peace, and joy. The seventh principle that Paul shares with us is in verse 19. It says this, Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. The Greek word here translated pursue means to seek after earnestly, to eagerly endeavor to acquire something. So pursue, pursue it's not a passive word. Uh, you don't pursue something accidentally. Uh, it takes a deliberate effort, a deliberate uh, persistence in something. And so Paul is saying we should pursue, we should make a deliberate effort to eagerly seek after two very important things. It takes effort, it takes a deliberate focus, it's something that we should be in pursuit of. And notice what these two very important things are. First, the things which make for peace, and second, the things by which one may edify another. The things that you and I should be pursuing, what we should be deliberately going after, are things that are going to bring peace in our relationship with others and things that are going to edify those people. 
If you're strong in your understanding of the liberty you have in Christ, before you exercise that liberty, you should ask this very important question. Will exercising this liberty in front of my brother or sister in Christ bring peace in our relationship and edify them? If the answer is no, it's not going to bring peace. It's going to bring problems. If the answer is no, it's not going to edify them. It's going to cause them to stumble. Then don't do it. Simple as that. Pose that question. Will it bring peace? Will it edify? No? Okay, well then, I'm not going to exercise this liberty in front of this brother or sister in Christ because the result is not what God would want. If you're weak in your understanding of the liberty you have in Christ, before you rebuke another believer for liberties that they are engaging in, before you judge them for those liberties, you should ask this question as well. Will rebuking my brother or sister in Christ for exercising their liberty bring peace to our relationship? Will it edify them? If the answer is no, it's not going to bring peace. It's going to bring conflict. If the answer is no, it's not going to edify them. It might cause them to stumble. Then once again, don't do it. You might not feel that you have the liberty to do those things, but since these are not issues where the Bible's clear, you don't have the right to rebuke them. You can't rebuke someone where God says it's not right or wrong. We don't have the right to come and do that. And so that's not your role. That's why Paul already said, leave the judging to Jesus. The seventh principle for how we should treat others who disagree with us on issues the Bible isn't clear on is we should focus on doing things that will edify and make peace with other believers and stop doing things that don't. Focus on doing things that are going to make peace. Focus on doing things that are going to edify and quit focusing on the things that don't. I want you to ponder this. If every one of us that was our heart. You know what? I just want to make peace. I just want to edify other believers. Imagine the difference in this area. Imagine how few problems we would have in these areas where the Bible's not clear. If my heart's like, you know what? I don't care that you differ because what I'm focused on is edifying you and having peace. And you know what? I realize that some of my responses, some of my liberties, some of my you know judgment or whatever, that's just going to hinder that. And so we're going to get rid of that right now. Verse 20 to 23 gives us some practical reasons why we should do this. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat meat nor to drink wine, nor to do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because he does not eat from faith. For whatever is not from faith is sin. Paul's used a lot of words, stumble, fall, different things to describe what our actions can do to another believer. But this is the, the most severe. Notice he says, do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. We need to understand that when we're not willing to love, when we're not willing to edify, when we're not willing to make peace, that we can destroy the work that God is doing in another believer. 
And hopefully we can all agree, our liberties are not worth that. Exercising your liberty should not be more important than that. You shouldn't say, you know what, who cares if they're destroyed? Who cares what happens in their relationship? Who cares what the work of God is that's going on in their life? We should never want to be the cause of destroying something God is doing in another believer's life. And Paul reiterates a few thoughts that he already shared with us because he wants to make sure we don't miss it. He says, all things indeed are pure, but it's evil for the man who eats with offense. The ESV translate this, I think, a little more clearly. It says, everything indeed is clean, but it's wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. Once again, hey, you have the freedom to eat anything you want, but you don't have the freedom to stumble others. And so there's going to come a time where in front of that believer, you don't eat that because you're not free to do that to them. That's why Paul says, It is good neither to eat meat, drink wine, or do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or made weak. That's what he wants us to come back to is, hey, you know what? You have all these liberties. He throws them all in there. Anything that's a liberty for you, hey, don't do it if it's ultimately going to cause your brother to stumble or be offended or made weak. It's not worth it for that reason. It's never good to do something that stumbles another believer. Paul goes on to share an important thought in verses 22 and 23. He says, do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself and what he approves, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith for whatever is not from faith is sin. Basically what Paul is saying here is, hey, if you have strong faith, Faith in this liberty, you feel like, you know what, I have reason to do this. I have liberty to you know, engage in this. He's like, yeah, that's great. It's great that you have this faith that what you're doing is right, that what you're doing is okay. But notice what he says, have faith to yourself before God. Yeah, let that be between you and God. Don't exercise that in front of others who it would stumble. Oh, you know, oh, well, I got this faith before God. I have this liberty, so I'm free to do it in front of anyone I want. He's saying, no, no, no. Just, that's good. You and Between you and God, it's good that you have that faith. It's good that you believe that you can do that. And you're allowed to exercise that when there's no one else who's going to be stumbled by watching you engage in those liberties. But Paul says, you know what? We need to understand that whatever is not from faith is sin. And this is a thing I think for those who are strong in their understanding of their liberties need to realize that for those who are weak, for those who don't understand they have certain liberties, that means they don't have faith that doing that thing is good for them, is right for them, then it's a sin to them. And so we shouldn't be trying to force them to do things that they don't feel right in doing. And that's why we looked at before, it's not just a problem by doing it in front of them and them looking at us as sinners, it's also a problem for trying to force them to do things that at this point in time in their relationship with the Lord, they don't realize that's a freedom for them, and so that's not something that would be good for them to do. Their conscience would come against them. The eighth and final principle for how we should treat others who disagree with us on issues the Bible isn't clear on is in the first three verses of chapter 15. It says this, We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. 
Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. You know, if you view yourself as someone who is strong in your understanding of liberties, you're like, yeah, I I know the liberties, I know I have freedom, I exercise those, then notice what Paul says, this is for you. Then you need to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please yourself. The Greek word here translated bear means to take up in order to carry or bear, to put upon oneself, to sustain, uphold, or support something. So when Paul says to bear with the scruples of the weak, he's not just saying, you know, bear with them, but really bear them up. Not just put up with their weakness, but more importantly, come alongside and strengthen them. Come alongside and help them. You know, not just, you know, oh, well, yeah, they got that and I'll just endure it. No, be there to help them. Be there to come alongside of them, to support them. And we need to do this not to please ourselves, but to please them for their good, leading to their edification. You know, I think this really comes back to the heart of the matter. One of the biggest reasons why you and I struggle in these areas where the Bible's not clear and we have these different views and, you know, we passionately debate and sometimes sinfully respond to one another, often it comes back to this issue of selfishness. You know what? I'm only concerned about pleasing myself and the good for me, and edifying me. I'm not really concerned about pleasing you. I'm not concerned about your good. I'm not concerned about edifying you. And so that's why I'm just going to do whatever I want, and I don't care how it influences you. I'll rebuke you all I want. I don't care how you feel. Why? Because I'm just focused on me. I'm just selfish. That's why Paul's saying, hey, this is one of the big problems. You want to change. You need to realize selfishness is the one of the biggest enemies to what he's challenging us to do. We need to go from being selfish to selfless. We need to go from someone who's focused on me and all that I'm going to get and my edification and my good and say, you know what? I'm going to be focused on your good. I'm going to be focused on edifying you. I'm going to be focused on how I can treat you with love. The greatest example of being selfless, of treating others in this way is definitely with Jesus. And that's why Paul says in verse 3, For even Christ did not please Himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Jesus is the ultimate example of a person who says, you know what, I'm putting the good of others before me. I'm putting the edification of others before me. I am sinless and have done nothing wrong, and I'm willing to take the sin of you and you and everyone in the world, and I'm willing to place it on myself. I'm willing to be judged for it, even though I am innocent. I'm looking out for your good. I'm looking to edify you, and the ultimate motivation is because of love. And Paul's saying, here's the example. You want an example of selflessness? You want an example of someone who says, you know what? I'm willing to look out for your good, for your edification. Jesus is that example. And we need to be more like Him. And if we would be in this area, then there would be a huge difference in these issues. 
The eighth principle for how we should treat others who disagree with us on issues the Bible isn't clear on is we need to please others for their good and edification just like Jesus did for us. I want you to think about this. If all of us were willing to please others for their good, if all of us were focusing on other people's edification just as Jesus did, these problems that are so apparent in the church world on these areas where you know the Bible isn't clear, they pretty much for the most part be gone. If you're strong in your understanding of the liberty you have in Christ, and you have a desire and a willingness to please others for their good and for their edification, then when you're with a believer who's weak in their understanding of their liberties, guess what? You're not going to exercise your liberty in front of them. Because you're going to ask yourself, is this good for them? Is this going to be something that's going to edify them? And the answer is going to be no. And so you're going to say, you know what? I love them enough that I won't do that. And now it's not going to be an issue. We're not going to have even a, a problem. We're not going to have to debate it and talk about it because I'm not going to engage in that because of their good and for their edification, I'm willing to deny a freedom and liberty that I have. If you're weak in your understanding of the liberty you have in Christ, but you want to please others for their good and for their edification, then when you're with a believer who's exercising liberties that you wouldn't exercise, that you don't even feel comfortable with anybody exercising, you still wouldn't rebuke them. You still wouldn't start judging them. Why? Because that is not for their good or edification. There's a great saying that I think sums up this issue that Paul has been dealing with in chapter 14 and the first three verses of chapter 15. This issue of how you treat others in areas where the Bible's not clear, because there's definitely a different way that you treat people when the Bible is clear. But it says this in essentials, unity, in non essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. In biblical essentials, there should be unity. We should stand strong for those things. Those things that are black and white, we should say, hey, this is true, this is right, God's Word clearly says it. We're not going to go away from that. We should unify together that we're all in agreement and we're not okay with anyone going away from this. But in the non-essentials, especially in those areas where the Bible is silent or the Bible's not clear, you know what? There is liberty. And we need to realize that. And it's okay if you don't feel at liberty in one of these areas and someone else does, realize there's liberty in that. But most importantly, what I love with this is in all things charity, in all things love, that should be the motivator. If we get there, if truly love is at the heart of it all, then we're going to do what's right. We're going to treat people the way we should. We're going to put these eight principles in because really these are just principles of love of practically putting loving action towards others that we disagree with on issues where the Bible isn't clear so that the relationship with us and the relationship with God is something that continues in a positive way and that we're not doing anything to stumble or cause each other to fall. Well, today is Manny and Phillip's last Sunday with us before they fly out to California and head out to Bible College. And um, I'd like to take some time just to pray for them. Uh, and so uh, I'm going to have them come on up and I'll have the, the elders come up as well. We'll just lay hands on them and pray for them. And, you know, I know that I can speak for our fellowship and just saying it's been encouraging. Manny got saved. He came the very first Sunday here. 
uh, just seeing both of your guys' growth uh, over the last few years in the Lord, having gone to two different mission trips with you, seeing even from the first one to the second one, the growth and the things that the Lord's been doing in your life. And so we're just excited for this next chapter uh, of getting to Bible college and just, you know, what the Lord has in store and what he's going to help you uh, learn and grow in and uh, what he has for your future. So uh, we love you guys. We want to pray for you and pray for this next step in your life. Uh, and so we can have the elders come on up and we'll lay hands on them. And um, anyone here who wants to pray for them, um, I encourage you to do that. Uh, I'll have uh, Ray open us up and I'll close us. And anyone who wants to pray in the middle, uh, please do. And uh, let's do it. Oh, yeah.